New Thinking Allowed, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring psychic phenomena in literature. My guest is Richard Reichbart. He is a psychoanalyst. He is also the author of The Paranormal Surrounds Us, Psychic Phenomena in Literature, Culture, and Psychoanalysis. He's also written a book of short stories called Curious Stories of Diverse Places. Richard is based in the New York City area, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Richard. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's a pleasure to be here, Jeff. We're going to explore psychic phenomena in great literature. In particular, I'd like to look at Shakespeare and and Tolstoy. And I I suppose that uh, for starters, just to approach the subject in general, uh, it might be useful to talk about um, what we can learn from literature because uh, literature ranges from mythology to fantasy to very realistic uh, depictions. And I think uh, it's useful to say that uh, your approach seems to be that w- when we look at great literature, we're, we're actually looking at very realistic depictions of how psychic phenomena operates in, in real life. That's absolutely true. And, and you say real life is... The literature that I look at doesn't necessarily have to do with uh, mediumistic procedures or, or uh, hauntings, uh, the, the kind of thing that is very popular sometimes to, in, 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 our, in our culture. It has to do with regular life. And the artists whom I look at really made discoveries just the, just the way parapsychologists did except they are embedded very carefully into regular life. And sometimes they have escaped the critics who look at these works and don't realize that, in effect, uh, artists are are parapsychologists in many ways. They seem to understand how psi phenomena operate in, in real life. Well, we're going to be looking at Shakespeare and, of course, his great play, Hamlet. And uh, you point out that literary critics have pretty much dismissed the ghost in Hamlet as something of a, a literary ploy to move the dramatic action along. And uh, uh, I've interviewed James Driscoll, a Shakespearean scholar on this channel, who insists pretty much that, that Shakespeare's attitude was kind of materialistic and that we don't need to take uh, the ghost of Hamlet's father uh, seriously. I, I disagree with with that. I think Stephen Greenblatt, who I knew at college many 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 years ago, t- takes a somewhat similar attitude. Ghosts were commonly accepted during uh, Shakespeare's time, and his the way in which he depicts ghosts is is tremendously uh, realistic in, in in the sense that it accords with what parapsychologists have have found and, and discovered. I think Hamlet in particular is a fascinating study of a man who is really acting as a parapsychologist, which is something that critics have completely missed. 
Well, how how so? It's very hard to imagine, you know, the Prince of Denmark as a parapsychologist, but uh, let's go into the details. There are two parts to this uh, in terms of, uh, one, of course, is the ghost, but the second part is the very interesting fact that the ghost imparts information to Hamlet that only the, the king who has killed Hamlet's father knows, or the only living person knows. There's a psi connection in that sense that, as I indicated, that the father seems to have some guilty, unconscious uh, desire to co communicate this information. Hamlet is trying to figure out not only who the ghost is or what the ghost is, but whether or not the information the ghost imparts to him about the way in which his father was killed, having a, a potion poured into his ear by the, the present king, whether that's accurate. In mediumistic productions, everybody is trying to determine whether or not the medium has got, gotten information which only the deceased could know or, some, or, or somebody else, and there's no sensory motor way of knowing this information. There's no way that Hamlet could know what happened to his father. There's no way that any of the people who see the ghost uh, could know what happened to the father. That Hamlet is involved in really a kind of scientific uh, endeavor way before parapsychology or parapsychologists to discover if the information that the ghost imparts is accurate. Well, in parapsychology literature, or the more accurately, I suppose, the literature of psychical research, uh, you rarely see the term ghost. More often, it's referred to as an apparition. There are what we refer to as shared apparitions. In the beginning of Hamlet, there's a shared apparition, which actually appeared twice to the two guards, uh, and then appears to three people, Horatio, and the two guards, Mar Marcellus and Bernardo, there's that shared apparition, a shared visual apparition, because the ghost does not speak to them. Then there's a shared apparition when Hamlet appears, but still a visual apparition. And then a visual and auditory apparition that only Hamlet hears. There is never a visual and auditory apparition that the guards hear or Horatio hear. They do hear then separately. Then there's the attempt that Hamlet undergoes or undertakes uh, to find out if the information that the ghost has imparted to him is accurate. And he has a, a helper, another scientific colleague, who is Horatio, who's supposed to help him to, to make a determination if this information is accurate. The play within a play, which is always celebrated by people who, who know Hamlet, or, or the play within a play is a device to try to determine if the information the ghost imparts is accurate, and the way in which they're determining that is to see whether the reaction of the king to the play within a play, which is a, a, a replay of, of what the king did to Hamlet's father. But Horatio is there as a second investigator to try to, to try to see if he can he, he sees the same thing as Hamlet sees in the king's reaction. It's all carefully set up. Critics say focus on Hamlet's 
indecisiveness during this long period of time. It's not in, not entirely indecisiveness. I mean, it, it's really that he's acting like an experimenter trying to get the results of an experiment, and it takes time to set it up and to think about it and, and, and to, to work it out. Then, I mean, this is, this is a wonderful final device, as often happens in, in the world of psi phenomena and parapsychology, that the ghost appears one final time, but this time it's not a shared apparition. It's not shared. It's just Hamlet seeing the ghost. His mother is there. His mother does not see the ghost. And his mother then thinks, well, Hamlet must be crazy because he sees something that I don't see. So that's a, it's a wonderful twist because in the world of parapsychological phenomena, the phenomena does not necessarily behave the way in which we would like it to behave. Our attempt to sometimes corral this phenomena doesn't always work. You know, we, we, we want to have a repeatable experiment, but it doesn't quite work. Sometimes a psychic, for example, can get results. Sometimes it, nothing happens. It, it just, <laughs> there's no way to, to do it. So it's it, these different phases of appar the apparition in, its, in itself is, is, is amazing. But the desire that, that Shakespeare shows or expresses, which is how do you determine if a ghost is real and if the information is accurate that, a, that an apparition uh, expresses? So it's a two-part thing, the apparitions and the desire on Hamlet's part to determine whether or not the information is, is really information, information that could not have been gotten in any other way. It's not like he went to the king and said, hey, did you kill my father? Uh, it's not like anybody observed the king. Nobody's alive except for the, the king who knows what happened. Well, I think it's interesting in that the uh, surveys of apparitions that were done by the Society for Psychical Research back in the 19th century show many examples that uh, are equivalent to the that of Hamlet's uh, ghost or the ghost of Hamlet's father, that uh, an apparition can be seen by multiple people, but there may be other individuals in the same room or space uh, who don't see that apparition. That research was uh, in the uh, what, late 1800s, uh, uh, was just remarkable. I mean, they, they had thousands of people they did research on, uh, who, who they asked for. And, and it was research about not only uh, apparitions of people who were deceased, it was also apparitions of people who were, who, who were still there, still around, still living. And, and very well done research. I, I do run into people who've read my my chapter on, on Hamlet, the parapsychologist, tend to argue with me about uh, my view that one does not have to believe that uh, an apparition is necessarily uh, the uh, spirit of somebody who, who, who has passed away. You can certainly formulate this, that this is uh, a visual manifestation of a psi connection of, of people who are alive, such as the king in this case. One doesn't have to jump to the spirit aspect of things, but that, that's, a, that's another, a different argument. In effect, 
Shakespeare is giving us an example of how a uh, scientifically minded person and, and Shakespeare lived, I suppose, at the very dawn of the scientific age. He was a, um, in the era of Francis Bacon, for example, who was one of the first writers of uh, the scientific method, uh, how one might actually yeah, approach the paranormal. And I guess it's also fair to say that the uh, idea of the play within the play using a dramatic procedure as part of a uh, scientific experiment is well in advance of uh, anything parapsychologists have yet attempted, to my knowledge. <laughs> I just think it's a sign of how brilliant uh, Shakespeare really was. Uh, and, I, and I do think it's unfortunate, not only that the critics of Shakespeare, such as the gentleman you mentioned, uh, Stephen Greenblatt, have, have not seen this. I don't understand why parapsychologists don't shout from the proverbial rooftop about Hamlet being the first parapsychologist. I mean, it's it, it, I don't understand that. In fact, a lot of this literature, it seems to me that the parapsychologists who could profit from from letting people know how uh, wonderful artists have have incorporated psi phenomena into their work in very studied ways, in very accurate ways, why it is that they don't, uh, the parapsychologists don't, don't advertise that more? It's, to, to me, it's, 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 it's just fascinating. Well, you point out how uh, in the field of psychoanalysis in our previous interview, how uh, telepathy is a very common experience in the intimacy of uh, psychoanalytic sessions. Freud himself wrote extensively about telepathy, and yet the majority of psychoanalysts today are uh, in denial. For that matter, what is uh, psychoanalysts tend to avoid this. It's very interesting. Because if you really think about it, I don't write about this in the book, but I'll, I'll mention it. The Oedipus complex, uh, complex, which is so important to, to Freudian theory, there's another piece to it, which is that it involves parapsychological phenomena because there there is a psychic who predicts what's going to happen at the crossroads when Oedipus kills his father, completely ignored by, by, by psychoanalysts. They don't talk about, about that aspect of things. But it's it, that psychoanalysts really avoid talking generally about uh, uh, telepathy, even though Freud himself posited some very important principles when he entertained the idea of telepathy, about which he also was somewhat ambivalent. But he did entertain the idea, and so did Jung. But in modern-day psychoanalysis, the subject tends to be avoided, and those who, such as myself, who who entertain the psi hypothesis in in psychoanalysis and in, in clinical settings are generally ignored at best. <laughs> <laughs> you mean you're lucky if you're ignored because otherwise you might be harshly criticized. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, coming back to the play within the play in Hamlet, as I think about it, Richard, it, it just dawned on me that uh, there is a form of uh, psychotherapy, I think maybe even an outgrowth of psychoanalysis developed uh, by Jacob Moreno called psychodrama. 
And, and indeed, that seems to be what Hamlet is engaging in. Oh, isn't that fascinating? Uh, uh, my, my introduction to psychodrama was actually in New Mexico uh, with a therapist who was trained by Moreno. It's a different form of, of therapy. Quite interesting, and, and I have taken part in it. And, and can, can lead to very interesting results and very sometimes therapeutic results. Yes, so I, I didn't make the connection in what I wrote about, but I, I, I think it's wonderful that you, you did. <laughs> you know, I also studied psychodrama back when I was a student of criminology. Uh, Professor Richard Korn uh, at that time had also been a student of Moreno, and uh, uh, I studied with him for about a year. As I recall, back in the uh, early days, there there was research done on different psychotherapeutic modalities and how effective each of them were. And psychodrama, uh, both had, uh, the, it had the greatest potential for positive change in a short amount of time, but also for negative change. It could be abused and, uh, Oh, wow. It's a very powerful form of psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. We should also talk about uh, Tolstoy's great novel, Anna Karenina, uh, in which, as, as you point out, the novel refers to uh, mutual dreams of two of the characters in, in the novel. And uh, that mutual dream itself seemed to be Tolstoy's uh, precognition of his own death. The chapters in, in my book, uh, The Par- Paranormal Surrounds Us, come from different times in my life. This chapter on Tolstoy was actually my first contribution to uh, parapsychological literature. Uh, It was written right after my analysis uh, with Jules Eisenberg. I submitted it to the Journal of the American Society of Psychical Research. uh, And the chapter on Hamlet was actually written recently. So there's, there's about 30 years between both of the, both of those contributions, the, the peculiar thing—I I just need to mention this because things work in very peculiar ways. The reason that I wrote that chapter was because I had picked up a used copy of uh, Tolstoy's *Anna Karenina*. I, I don't recall where, and I noticed in going through it, it wasn't marked up too much. But what was marked up was exactly these these connections have no idea who who marked it up because it was a used copy but i just finished with my analysis with eisenberg and as a result of picking up that used copy and seeing the connections that i i I also made uh in marked up in 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 my my uh paperback copy of anna karenina as a result i i i wrote this paper uh back in 1970s what is fascinating is the extent to which Tolstoy embeds these dreams and, 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 and the events into his work. Uh, and equally fascinating is the fact that he himself died at the train station. I, I suggest that it was somewhat precognitive of his, of his own death or that he arranged his own death to die at the train station. But uh, the extent to which he connects in a parapsychological way, dreams and events is really, really just just amazing. 
just amazing. And I go through in detail how the dreams of Vronsky and his lover and Anna correspond to each other and how they correspond to events uh, that Anna experiences on the day that uh, uh, she dies. And in fact, Anna and Vronsky do share, they each, they share their dreams. And uh, Vronsky doesn't tell Anna about the dream that he had that corresponds to her, but it gives him a, a very chilling uh, feeling when Anna tells him her dream. And this is before, of course, she commits, she ends up committing suicide. It's, it's a beautifully done uh, uh, work of art uh, uh, and very carefully crafted. Now, I'm pretty sure many of our viewers will not have read, and uh, I pronounced it Anna Karenina. Uh, perhaps my pr pronunciation is incorrect. <laughs> it may, may well be right, Jeff. I, I don't know. I, I, you, you may be correct. Karenina sounds nicer, I think. But in, in, in any case, for our viewers who, who aren't aware, uh, at the end of the novel, she commits suicide by throwing herself in front of a, a train at a, at a train station. And, and the dreams that she and Vronsky share prior to this event are, are sort of intimations that that's going to happen. And in fact, as I recall, uh, in the novel, at the time she commits suicide, there are many details, uh, such as a, a peasant, uh, a particular peasant at the pe train station that, uh, also correspond with the uh, dreams. Yes, they're, they're very carefully, they're very minutely done. There's a, the, in the dreams, there is a peasant. Uh, I mean, they're, they're correspondence, and, and, and when she commits suicide, there is a peasant at the train station. It, it actually begins if, uh, when Anna meets Vronsky. She is sharing a train compartment she does, with Vronsky's mother. That's how they meet at a train station initially. And... On top of that, she's somewhat shaken because some some workman has has been killed by the the, the train at the time at, by a train at the time she's at the station. So it even begins that way. They meet each other, uh, and she's shaken by a death by somebody being run over by a, 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 a train. What Tolstoy makes apparent is the dream that Anna has didn't begin when Vronsky. And Anna meet. She's had this dream before. It's a repetitive dream. It, it does occur when she and Vronsky are together, but it, 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 it represents a dream that happened before. And she also has what we call, a, you may have to correct me on my pronunciation too, her hypnagogic vision, which also corresponds to the, to the dream. I mean, this is, this is throughout, throughout this, this, this novel, but done in such a way that you kind of read it if you're reading it for the pleasure of reading it and it kind of penetrates but you keep on going on it isn't that it's it's highlighted in 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 big bold colors it just becomes part of life which is one of the points of your book is the paranormal surrounds us is that we're all at at the subconscious level embedded in a in a realm of uh, coincidence synchronicity interlocking imagery and uh, telepathic connections to show you how the dreams are the same when vronsky has has a uh, his dream and which is actually the first dream 
talked about he, he dreams of a peasant with a matted beard, a little fellow, dirty, bending over, doing something, speaking peculiar, incomprehensible French, and, and, and the peasant is a beater. Anna's dream is, involves a peasant with a matted beard, small, terrible looking, stooped over a sack, muttering French, quick, quickly rolling his R's, saying it must be beaten, the iron pounded needed. Now, there's another connection too, which is when Anna, when Anna kills herself, she, in the carriage, there is a French couple speaking French. That's how the, 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 the French uh, ends ends up here, but both of those dreams have have these individual connections, which is, is is actually what happens when you're doing psychoanalytic work, because you will get a patient who will give you a dream which has specific connections to another patient's dream. That's the kind of work in psychoanalysis which most psychoanalysts don't explore, uh, which those who are interested in psi phenomena or believe they're important to explore. And the connections can be very, very specific. When patients are sometimes competing with other patients unconsciously and want to get the analyst's attention or want to find out something in the analyst's own life that may unconsciously, which may be happening, which they pick on, pick, pick up on with, with a psi connection. So you can get two patients who pick on pick up on something in the analyst's life that, that, that took place, and the patients have similar dreams. It often comes out in dreams. I know there's uh, other literature on, on mutual dreams. In fact, uh, many years ago, I did an interview with the author of the book, Mutual Dreaming, and, and she arranges for people to deliberately plan to have mutual dreams together. It's almost for recreational purposes. It's like they get together and have parties. Uh, it, it does remind me, these connections, I mean, in, in the case of Hamlet, it seems pretty traumatic in the case of uh, Tost uh, and Karenina, it, it's, it seems traumatic. But these connections can sometimes happen uh, happen in general, and often they don't involve trauma or or death, or they're just connections that that take place uh, sometimes on trivial issues. They don't have to involve life changing uh, issues. There are psychoanalysts who entertain the idea that there are connections, but they insist that they must be as a result of trauma. I don't think Freud insisted that to begin with. He thought that if, if there were psych connections, they were an everyday phenomena. Eisenberg thought the same thing. I think the same thing based upon what I observe in, in my work with patients. Uh, I think they're an everyday phenomena, sometimes just too often ignored. And sometimes they can be related to loss uh, and trauma, but they don't have to be. They could be fun, as you as, as this, 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 this person suggests, if we weren't so afraid of it, maybe it would be more fun, you know. The interesting thing, of course, about uh, Anna Karenina is that uh, the 
apparent telepathic connection between Anna and Vronsky uh, is also emblematic of uh, deep issues in Tolstoy's own life. That's a little different than uh, analyzing uh, your analysis of Hamlet because uh, we're, we don't talk about Shakespeare's personal life much there. But uh, when it comes to Tolstoy, it seems as if uh, his depictions of the paranormal uh, are really reflecting uh, profound issues issues in, in his personal life. The thing that you said about Hamlet is not entirely true. We, people have wondered about Shakespeare when it comes to Hamlet. I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. But Tolstoy was a brilliant man, but, but, but also a br brutal man emotionally. And he had a very, very difficult and contentious relationship with his own wife and, and, and uh, was very demeaning of her at, at times. And uh, when he died... He had decided that after many, many, I forget how many years of, of marriage, that he was going to leave her. And that's that's the reason. That's how he ended up at the train station. He, he was in the process of leaving her, but doing it in a kind of brutal way. But the person who brings up most strikingly, in, in many ways, Shakespeare had a son, Hamnet, who passed away. And people have felt that Hamlet, the play, is Shakespeare in a sense mourning his son. His father also had died some, somewhere around this, the time in which he wrote the play. But the person who explores this uh, is James Joyce, who does make the connection of Hamlet and Hamnet and Shakespeare mourning his son in Ulysses, which is, after all, named after a, a, a Greek drama. But Ulysses also is intimately exploring Shakespeare and Hamlet. And the fact that the two main characters in Ulysses, Stephen Dedalus and, and, and Bloom, are also in mourning at the same time. So it, he really, in also very subtle ways, is exploring exactly what Shakespeare was doing in writing Hamlet. Well, it's interesting how the the world of literature sort of reaches out and touches the you know, what we think of as the objective physical realm uh, when i think of anna karenina's suicide in in front of a train i'm also reminded of my late friend larissa vilinskaya a russian parapsychologist who who died um, as best we can tell i mean she she was killed by a, a train and i think it was in palo alto california where she was working and indications are that she threw herself in front of that train oh my goodness jeff i i did not know that i did not know her but one wonders if she was influenced in some 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 conscious unconscious way by by Tolstoy's uh, great novel. She she was Russian. Uh, she was a Russian parapsychologist who emigrated to the United States and, and published a journal for many years called Psy Research about parapsychology, and then later on worked very closely with Ed May, a very well-known prominent parapsychologist who uh, uh, traveled to the Soviet Union and uh, corresponded after the Cold War ended with the people doing remote viewing in the Soviet Union, just as he was doing remote viewing for the U.S. government during the Cold War era. And Larissa was his assistant. 
and uh, I think helped uh, worked with him as a translator. But at, at some point, maybe like Anna Karenina, she made a decision to throw herself in front of a moving train. There's another connection with Tolstoy as well now that I think about it, which is he became, as you point out, something of a religious fanatic uh, uh, as a way to punish his wife. And I recall reading that uh, in his personal library, he had a book written by William James' father. Henry James. William James, of course, is one of the founders of uh, the field of psychical research and American psychology. Uh, his father was a Swedenborgian, uh, and uh, apparently Tolstoy thought very highly of this very obscure book written by Henry James. It's wonderful how things are kind of tied together, I mean, in, in so many different ways. One of the wonderful things about studying Psy is is the human aspect to it. I, I know that people are very determined to make the experiments, but from my point of view, to find the connections that take place in, in daily life, in regular life, in, in dreams all the time, and, and to explore them with my own dreams and with my patients, it just adds so much to life. I, I, I do posit, as I did mention last time, uh, and as other people have posited, that there is something very frightening about uh, paras about psi phenomena because of our uh, aggressive wishes, and and uh, I don't think we have fully explored that aspect of things. And I think that that that's the reason that some that's the underlying reason that some people uh, are are opposed to to exploring psi. Not that they're conscious of that, but but there is also the wonderful connectedness that takes place that, that just adds so much to life. One would think that people would be delighted to explore it, uh, just like uh, because it it, it it brings such excitement to uh, uh, to life rather than rather than to wall it off and, and not explore it. Well, since we started to talk about James Joyce's great novel, Ulysses, uh, is probably a good idea to delve into it a, a little more because uh, he seems to express psychic phenomena in a way that very much parallels your own experience in psychoanalysis. Let me see if I can do this, this properly. I, I mentioned that both uh, the main characters in in Ulysses are, of course, of course, the character that is is like James Joyce himself, which is Daedalus, and 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 Bloom, who is 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 a different kind of character, and they go through one day. Uh, I think it's June sixteenth, nineteen. I'm going to get the date wrong, nineteen oh seven or something like that. Uh, and it's it's just their experience of that one day, but. They're both in, in, in mourning, in, in a, a sense, Daedalus about the death of his mother, uh, for whom he feels very guilty because he would not uh, pray with her on her deathbed because he didn't believe in God. He's a, a Jesuit kind of skeptic, but haunted by Catholic guilt. Uh, and, and Bloom, who's mourning the death of a comrade, a, a friend, but who's also, whose son also passed away. 
and, and so both of them are actually in mourning at the time uh, on that day, and they don't know each other. It's not that they, but as they start to communicate with each other unconsciously without, they have similar dreams, very, very much like, uh, uh, like in, in Anna Karenina. They have similar dreams, and eventually, eventually during this day, they do meet, meet up with each other. And Bloom ends up kind of protecting Daedalus and treating him a little bit like the son that he, he, he lost. And uh, the, the, the dreams uh, correspond with each other. But again, it is done so subtly that you may not even notice it. You're, you, you, and they don't know about, unlike Vronsky knew about Anna's dream, he didn't share it. But, but neither of them know about their, their, how their dreams correspond. The reader knows about it. And, and my observation is that the reader is put in the, in the place of a, a, a psychoanalyst because I may get a dream from you and a dream from the next person whom I see, uh, and, and they may correspond, but neither you nor the next person, you don't know each other. You don't know that you, you, you had similar dreams. I know it just the way the reader knows that these two characters Bloom and Daedalus had similar dreams and then meet each other. So it's 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 a fascinatingly explored uh, dynamic, but it does all all deal with mourning, the way in which they're mourning deaths. Uh, it, it's a little less direct than than what what Tolstoy did, but I found out after I had written this as a result of something. Uh, doing some further explanation. Nobody had made these connections that I had known, except I found out that Nabokov, the writer of, of Lolita, who also was a, was a teacher, had actually written uh, separately at a, uh, at a different time, uh, saying, wasn't it fascinating that, that, that Tolstoy had these dreams uh, and that James Joyce had these depicted these dreams, these connecting dreams, and nobody had made nobody had ever commented about them. So somehow we were on the same page. <laughs> well, uh, I guess people often think of these uh, writers as as operating out of their own unconscious. This is what makes for a great writer. They pick up intuitively things that. As parapsychologists, as a psychoanalyst, we, we end up studying, but they know it. That's what makes them so great. They're, they're, they, they know about human nature in ways that most of us may not know. And they bring it to their craft in ways which I believe are realistic. They're not just a, 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 you know, poetic licenses, what, what has been attributed to uh, uh, to Shakespeare, and, and when he talks about his ghosts, I think I think he knew things that most of us don't know, or would not ordinarily know, and and was able to depict it in in such such moving ways. That's that's what makes for really great art. I'm kind of giving a spiel here, but I really do wish parapsychologists would more frequently speak about these things because I think it would make their their science more understandable, more appreciated by the public. It would draw more people in. Similarly, I wish 
it worked the other way and that the English, the, the, the critics of literature were more familiar with how pa- the findings of parapsychology. Uh, they, they really don't, don't know about them. Uh, and, and as a result, they would treat these as, as, as I say, as poetic license without realizing how wonderfully intuitive and accurate these artists have, have been. It seems to me that one of the characteristics of this great literature is they they resist the temptation of oversimplifying things. They present the paranormal uh, in in complexity, which is the the very same complexity that confounds parapsychologists and their critics all the time because uh, the phenomena seems to elude any attempt to come up with a, a, a solid theoretical understanding. There's some wonderful criticism of parapsychologists uh, by uh, G.K. Chesterton, who, who makes fun of them for trying to put the psychics into sterile kind of circumstances where there's no real desire to perform, where there's no, no human uh, interaction taking place. And, and the idea that somehow you can confine psi phenomena within the usual experimental procedures that one might use under other circumstances, I, I don't think it can be done. Uh, it's, it's, we do succeed sometimes, but, but, but not the kind of tight circumstances that, that, people, uh, that, that some scientists would prefer. I don't think it lends itself. I don't think the phenomena which is unconsciously driven, it's not like I can say, okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to now have a dream or I'm, I'm going to even have, I'm going to make an exact connection between something that you're thinking. It's not going to, even if I'm able to connect in some way to what you're thinking, it's not going to be exact. It can't be because it comes from the unconscious. So I, I, even, even in telepathic drawing experiments, uh, which are wonderful experiments done by Upton Sinclair, done by, done by uh, many people, uh, the connections are are not exact. You may be thinking of a bottle of wine. I may, I do this, I say this in my book, I, I, I may happen to, to think of grapes. Is, is that a connection? Is that a hit? Sounds like it. You may be thinking of a bottle of wine, the author of, of Grapes of Wrath. I may think of the author. Is that, is, is that a hit or, or not? <laughs> you know, it, it goes on and on like that. So it's very hard to have that, that, that very the, the kind of connections that scientists tend tend to want. You have to start to wander into unconscious, uh, the the unconscious, which is what this is all about, anyhow. The desire to have have uh, remote viewing exactly it's very very hard to do because there are always going to be other things that that that, that the unconscious pull, uh, pulls in. Sometimes they're connections. Sometimes they're not, and sometimes there may be connections we don't even realize. We have to ask the person who's the, the, the psychic or the, or the other person what they're thinking of in addition to what, in addition to the obvious. Great writers seem to have a talent for expressing this uh, and, and making it clear to articulate these subtleties that seem to escape us otherwise. Yes, they do. They, they really do. My background began as uh, 
an English major, in addition to my interest in psychoanalysis. That was my uh, entrance into this uh, fascinating world. Well, Richard Reichbart, once again, this has been a fascinating conversation. It really opens up a whole new window to look at the paranormal. And I agree with you. I hope more parapsychologists take note of it. And I hope more uh, literary critics take note of it as as well, because there's a wealth to be mined in, in the world of great literature. And I'm also pleased to let our viewers know that we plan to have a further discussion, in particular focusing on the work of G.K. Chesterton. So, uh, thank you so much for being with me, Richard. Jeff, thank you so much. And I hope that your viewers will multiply because I do think this is a very important area to, to, for everybody to explore. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us.